friends. Welcome back to Redrawing the Bath. Today, I have the awesome opportunity to introduce you to a good friend and to be in an exciting new first. So this is the first time that I've done an interview at a very early hour of the morning to uh, compensate for a time zone difference. Uh, my guest today is in Spain while I am in the United States. Uh, today, I get to introduce someone who has in so many ways through speaking, through writing, has uh, encouraged me to press deeper into a contemplative and uh, meditative and mystical understanding of, of what Jesus said and what the Gospels have to say, both in their context and today. Today, I have the special opportunity of welcoming to the show Alexander Shyeth. Alexander, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, Chris, thank you for asking me. And uh, whereas it's very early in the morning for you, it's early in the morning for me in Spain. And I can honestly say this is the first time I've done a podcast at this hour. Heck yeah. I guess I guess it's a first for both of us today. <laughs> <laughs> it is. So I, I usually start the show just by asking um, a little bit about your faith journey of, of where where you've been within the realm of Christianity to where you are now. Ah, the, that's sort of a, uh, that's a, a large topic as, as I age. Um, I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. I am the son of Lebanese immigrants who uh, my parents were brought to the United States at the turn of the old century as children in their parents' arms, uh, really escaping Lebanon because they were starving. And, uh, and so I, I grew up in an Eastern uh, right, an Eastern tradition of the Roman Catholic Church. And the Eastern traditions of the Catholic Church are very different from what most people think about when they think about Catholicism. Uh, our, my uh, religious faith formation as a child was really uh, what I would call more mystical. We didn't. We, we didn't go to church to hear long, beautiful sermons. It's like uh, our church experience was about chanting, uh, about feeling something in the body. It was about, about the heart in many ways more, more than the head. And uh, so that's where I started. And I also started in very difficult days in Alabama where uh, as a Lebanese immigrant, we were considered colored, uh, that word in, in Birmingham. And so all those, those signs at, at, at restrooms or water fountains, uh, white only, I, I was not white. Uh, I was on the other side of the tracks, uh, the KKK, uh, um, they, uh, most people don't know that in Alabama, at least that the KKK was very much against against immigrants as well as against African-Americans. And so uh, I told a story about how as a seven-year-old stood outside my grandmother's house, my in Arabic, my Sitho's home, which had been firebombed by the KKK because we were Catholic and we were Lebanese. So to, to go to a Lebanese Catholic church in Birmingham meant something. It, it, actually meant almost taking your life in your hands. It wasn't just a performer on Sunday morning. 
But all of that goes into uh, forming uh, who I was as a as a person and as a faith person. And I I often tell the story about the Sunday following the burning of my grandmother's house. My grandmother's house was burned on the Tuesday night, and on Sunday we were at a different dining room table with her. And when I say we, that's like some 70 of us, very much the the Lebanese clan. And we were always with her uh, for Sunday lunch or in the South, we would say Sunday dinner. And on this particular Sunday, we were no longer sitting in her home at her beautiful mahogany table. Uh, We were in an aunt and uncle's house and we were in the basement on uh, wooden planks and and folding chairs and she was in the middle of the room and she said grace as usual and then you knew and even as a seven-year-old i knew you never reach for your fork until she reached for hers but after she said grace uh this sunday she didn't pick up her fork And she looked around the room and she looked just briefly at each one of us and just sort of looked us in the eye. And then she said very quietly, but very insistently three times, no hate, no hate, no hate. And in the way that a seven-year-old might be able to understand, I knew that there was something in that moment that I wanted my life to be about. That I, how could this woman who had just lost her husband or or my grandfather had just died of a heart attack a few months prior, now the home and everything that she had brought from Lebanon was gone in the fire. Um, And yet her, Her only concern in that moment was to lift the family up and help us move forward. So being uh, Lebanese from an immigrant family where I was really raised by my grandparents as as my parents worked very hard in the family business. And my grandparents couldn't read or write. Um, They didn't know, they couldn't read or write in Arabic, they couldn't read or write in English. So I didn't grow up with like folk tales and I didn't grow up with much of Disney, etc. What I grew up with was sitting on my grandmother's lap and her chanting to me in Arabic, the scriptures, essentially the gospels. And I understand that in the Middle East, this is how people learn the scriptures they, because they can't read. They, they're, they're chanted in church on Sunday, and people memorize these chants. And those were my folk stories, listening to her, listening to her heartbeat. And I, and I learned something about, about the Gospels from her, and, and it's true throughout the Middle East, that if something is sacred, you would never profane it by just reading it. It's like there's a music, there's a music to the text, and the music to the text is just as important as the words. 
And that that melody of her heart and that melody chant line uh, of the of the gospels in Arabic went inside me. And so years later, when we're sitting at that table on that awesome, terrible Sunday, and she says the words, no hate. Those words were deeply true to her. Not, it wasn't, she wasn't just saying words. Her faith um, and that, that taproot of, of the presence in her was what was speaking. And, and that's in that moment, again, in, in some way that a seven-year-old can think back to that moment. I wanted to know how to do that. I wanted to be able to do that in my life. So my journey with faith and religion in some ways is, I assume, probably a little unique, at least in the United States, in the sense that I didn't rebel against religion because religion for me had always been this mystical presence. Um, so as I grew up, the, 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 the Christian church in Alabama, when I grew up, were right there on the front lines uh, with Martin Luther King and with the demonstrations. The, the church was there advocating for the civil rights of all people. And, and so I, and I was there advocating for the civil rights of all people. I, I just learned this morning about the, the death of, of John Lewis, uh, such a, a great, great civil rights person. And uh, that, the, that Christianity had aligned itself with such justice uh, helped me rebel against the, the structures in the country that were not in favor of justice. So my, my faith tradition was very much uh, uh, inspired by the Christianity of my childhood and the Christianity of my teenage years. And my, my real struggle with my Christianity happened when I got to college. And I, I was a kind of a, a bright kid and I was fortunate enough to go to the University of Notre Dame. And I was on my way to seminary because uh, when I was born, my father named me Alexander, and Alexander was the name in our family line that goes back 14 generations. Every son that was named Alexander was to become the next in the line of priests, and very much in the Lebanese tradition. Your father gives you your role at birth, and that's not up for discussion. Anyway, so I had... I had gone to Notre Dame uh, with the plan, which in fact I did, which is after after graduation, I would go on to seminary. So at Notre Dame, I'm now in theology and philosophy classes. And for the first time, I came up against something that like I couldn't understand. I couldn't understand the God is dead movement. I couldn't understand a lot of Western philosophy. That wasn't how, how I was formed. I was formed at a metaphoric, poetic, sensory-based Christianity, where 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 God was a feeling, was a, a was a uh, like God was like breathing air. Uh, it, it wasn't a philosophical concept, and so I, I had to I had to really struggle because I just I couldn't 
I could not literally understand philosophy coming from where I was as a as a pre-Western individual, at least pre-Western in terms of pre-industrial. So my faith crisis started at Notre Dame, where I discovered that there was a lot of Christianity which had this uh, philosophical construct for who God was, and I had to find my way into appreciating it. But it wasn't where I started. So at that point, my childhood faith crumbled. And uh, I was like in this lost in this forest of thought that, that didn't make sense to me. And, and I was learning about the critical historical literary methods of interpreting scripture and and I was reading the words and I was understanding what they were saying, but I couldn't find that living heartbeat of my grandmother. I couldn't find something in all that information that would want me want to say, no hate, no hate, no hate. Anyway. Yeah. No, it's it, it's interesting within that, uh, it, coming from an environment where it was all about especially growing up within the church, it, it was all about those um, literary themes and, and ways to interpret the text and, and even uh, in some ways combating the God, God is dead movement um, instead of this mystical contemplative meditative kind of Christianity that, and, and I don't want to say that like the other side doesn't affect people's lives or doesn't have the power to affect people's lives but this tangible cosmic uh, consequence of, of having a contemplative faith. So many of us started out with that very literal kind of faith and then have kind of walked away from that. It's interesting to, to talk to someone who who's kind of coming from the other side of it, of starting with that contemplative faith and seeing the love and the compassion and the mercy. Cause I know a lot of people who, start out with that kind of literal faith that would not have the Christ consciousness, if you will, to, to say no hate after having their house burnt down by domestic terrorists. I did have to make the journey, which I have made to appreciate the, the, the cognitive mind understanding and, and it's why in my work, uh, in my writing, and, and when I talk, I often talk about heart in mind, heart in mind. Because I, I don't want a tradition that asks me to check my mind at the door. And I don't want a tradition that asks me to check my heart at the door. I, I, I want, I want a, a Christianity, which I, for myself I found which allows my heart to expand with the beauty of the cosmos and allows my mind to understand uh, how things have happened and why things have happened and how, and, uh, and how an ability to critically think mm. aids my understanding of a God which holds the cosmos in its hands. Yeah, and that's one of the things that that's impresses me so much about you and, and has been so impactful about your about your work and about hearing you speak is as a student of that l- literal kind of 
uh, worldview of I grew up in a or I I was kind of brought into a very uh, modernistic uh, hermeneutic and, and theology and understanding of of the text and and its application to my life, and so I think one of the things that I appreciate so much about your work is that you are you you come from this very contemplative place, but you speak in a way that I can understand as a as a more um, not more studious, but, uh, but as a more, uh, in, in that way inclined in the way of, of kind of a more modernist uh, worldview. Well, and it's an important element of faith. It's like, I've really grown to appreciate both what heart gives and what the mind gives, because without critically mm. thinking about who we are, where we've come from and where we're going, we unreflectively just repeat the errors of history. Mm. Yeah, no, it's, it, it's true. And gosh, there's, there's so many different directions we, <laughs> we could go with that idea um, of us forgetting our history. But I, I am interested because we've kind of talked around it um, of, of your work and, and these ideas of heart and mind. And, and I'm just for the sake of people who haven't uh, heard your name or, or, encountered your work I'd, I'd love for you to just kind of give a, a synopsis of 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 the works that you've you've created and, and the thoughts that you've had and, and shared and, and blessed so many of us Thank with you, so let me start in the middle of the story or, or later in the story which is the year 2000 and literally in mm. november of 2000 after a day of hiking in the, the high desert of new mexico this is before i lived there um I came back to my cabin late that night, exhausted, but tried to get to sleep, tried to get to sleep, couldn't get to sleep. And so I, I opened this this book, this large book in Christology that I had brought with me because a friend had given it to me. I thought, well, let me let me at least read out read some parts of this book so I could write him a, a gracious thank you note. And and I and I opened the book and it's by the uh, author from London, the Reverend Robin Griffith Jones, and the book is called The Four Witnesses. And in this book, mm. he summarizes uh, what he believed was going on in the community, uh, the first century community, when a gospel text was composed for them, and his work. Mm was the last uh, the last clue in what at that point was about a 30-year search to find a larger basis to understand the four Gospels. So again, when I was at Notre Dame and I came upon all the beautiful historical critical understanding of the texts, um, it, it challenged that heart perspective that I had grown up with and I was like, okay, I've, I've got to find a way through all of this information to appreciate mm. that this is truly the anchor of who my God is. That, um, mm. you know, that there was all the discussion about who wrote this text and, and, and how these texts came to be put together. And, you know, did we end up with these texts because 11 white guys were sipping gin and trading them like baseball cards? Um, I, I, I wanted to know at anchor 
that these are the greatest texts of Christendom. And so I started this, mm. but I had no idea it was going to be a 30-year search. And here, here are the anchor points that, uh, that became part of this search that culminated with Robin Griffith Jones's work in the year 2000. Uh, the first piece was I had the great good fortune when I was at Notre Dame to uh, attend a series of, of springtime seminars with the American mythologist named Joseph Campbell. Um, Joseph Campbell, who was the, the unofficial scriptwriter for Star Wars and The Matrix and all of these, these great movie directors who came to him to learn how to tell a story. And Campbell would say that there's only one story going on in the cosmos, and it's got a couple of hundred billion scripts, and that the one great story has four chapters to it, and that we are all moving through this, this sequence of the four chapters of the one great story. Well, as soon as I heard Campbell say that, I thought, huh. Could there be a connection between what he's describing as the one great story of humanity and the fact that we ended up with four gospel texts? That was, that was the, the, the mm -hmm. first clue. Um, the, the second clue was to understand that early Christianity, and when I talk about early Christianity, I'm talking about the first 500 years, that, that mm -hmm. Christianity used the gospel text in a certain sequence to prepare people for baptism. And that the preparation for baptism often was three years long. And that preparation was not so much intellectual as it was formative. And what they did over those three years mm -hmm. is that Sunday by Sunday by Sunday, a person would interiorize a small portion of the gospel text. But the gospel mm. text was always read in a certain sequence. And this is what was so stunning to me is that the sequence was 1st Matthew, 2nd Mark, 3rd John, and 4th Luke. All right, so... Now, now hmm. I've got Campbell's idea that all great stories are told in four parts. And I've got this understanding from early Christianity that the gospel had a particular sequence that it was read as a preparation for baptism. And then I discovered uh, that in the second century, the very first person who wrote about the choice of gospel texts was Bishop Irenaeus, who wrote in the year 180. And what he says is something very, very, very strange to us, because we've listened to the Enlightenment for 500 years, and we have thought <laughs> that we were choosing the gospel texts because they are the true story of Jesus. And I'm not about to tell you that they're not the true story of Jesus. But here's a really strange thing that Irenaeus said. The very first thing ever said about the choice of gospel text. And he said, the gospel text must be four. He didn't say, hmm. he didn't say they must be the true story of Jesus, although that was assumed. Why, hmm. why must the gospel text be four in number?
It's not the number of the number of texts written. It's not the number of the apostles. It's obviously not the number of the eyewitnesses. Why did he lay down the basis of the gospel text as the number four? Why does Campbell say that the human, the great human journey is told in four chapters? And why did the early Christian church for 500 years preparing people for baptism read the gospel with a certain sequence? And, and um, two things happened in the late 1990s, and one was Robin Griffith Jones's book, where he talks about what mm-hmm. was going on in the community when that gospel was written for them. And secondly, came this work on the early Passover. And the, these two pieces together created a oh my God moment for me. Well, hmm. any of us who have gone to a Jewish home for Passover know that Today, they pull out this beautiful script called the Haggadah script. And even if you haven't gone to to a Jewish home for Passover, you probably know that there is a script and you know that the Passover meal has got all these ritual items to it, etc. Well, Mm -hmm. um, we've never stopped to consider that that wasn't how Passover was celebrated during the time of Jesus at all. During the time of Jesus, Passover was something quite different, quite more simple. Uh, There was a meal where all the family was gathered. Uh, There was a lamb or a goat that had been taken to the temple that day and slain. And the meat brought back and prepared for dinner that night. The family gathers at table. There's no script. The head of the household now is going to lead the community through a reflective exercise, very much like a Socratic method, reflecting on Mm -hmm. the story of Passover as it is happening in their life now. So Passover was not primarily a historical recitation. It was a present moment reflection on your life today. And it would go something like this. At the beginning of the evening, the head of the household would ask the first question. We know that our ancestors were slaves in Egypt, and we know that Yahweh raised up Moses to offer us a journey of liberation. And we know that our ancestors, family by family, had to make a decision about whether to go on that journey of liberation. Now, tonight, Mm. as we sit here, Where in your life are you locked in a slavery? Where tonight are you locked in some paralysis, some fear, some anxiety, some place of no hope? Uh, Where tonight perhaps are you locked, these are my words, locked in some manner of an addiction? Talk, talk, talk around the table. Later in the evening, Mm -hmm. back to the head of the household. Now we know that those of our ancestors who went with Moses went out into a desert that was an experience like unto death. And we know that many of our ancestors died in that desert. But where tonight are you in a death-like experience in your life? 
what tonight is dying in you, what tonight needs to die in you. Talk, talk, talk around the table. Later in the evening, come the third question. We know that our ancestors were led across the Jordan into the promised land. And standing that first moment on the promised land, they knew that the promise was true. Where tonight are you hearing God's new promise in your life? And how will you know that that mm. promise is true? And then finally, the last question of Passover, which comes at the end of the meal and comes with the cup called the cup of Elijah, which is the cup that Jesus took and pronounced the new covenant over. Uh, but with this final cup, the head of the household would say, and we know that it took our ancestors 200 years after having arrived in the land of promise. It took 200 years to create the nation state of Israel. As we leave Passover tonight, mm. what works are you committing yourself to for the sake of yourself, your family, your country, your nation, your tradition? What works are you committing yourself to between now and next Passover? Talk, talk, talk around the table. So after 30 years of research into all of these threads from Joseph Campbell through Bishop Irenaeus, through um, the great spiritual uh, mystics of Christianity, and all of them circling around the fact that we have a known journey with God. Each one of us has to walk it but we have a known map of the journey. And that known map of the journey is just like that night at Passover. And that because the map of Passover was so prominent to our Jewish ancestors, of course, when Irenaeus says, because we're still primarily Jewish at that point, the gospel text must be four, must be four, not one, not three, not five, not 42, it must be four. I think he was following the sense that the gospel text was going to be the Christian map to the journey that we all make with God that our Jewish ancestors already knew about. The only thing that was needed was to add the impact and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus the Christ to the story. Mm. So, when I when mm. I discover Robin Griffith Jones's work, that was the final key because what he showed me was ah, Matthew is the text of slavery, in the sense that the community of Matthew has just lived through the destruction of the temple and the massacre of the Jewish priesthood, and many Jews are believing that this is the apocalypse, that there's nothing to live for. That they, that they are locked in a time of utter destruction. And Matthew's text comes to them as a text of, it's time to start a new journey. That this ending mm. of the temple and the priesthood, like, like what happened in slavery in Egypt, is not where your story ends, it's where your story begins again. And so, of course... The Gospel of Matthew, which is the text about how we face a moment of profound change, 
must be the first gospel in the sequence. And the second gospel in the sequence is Mark, because that gospel was written to the community in Rome, who, and the community in Rome has just been condemned to execution by Nero, having been false to be blamed for setting the great city of Rome on fire in the year 64. And so the, the text of Mark is the text of, how can I walk through the valley of the shadow of death by the power of the resurrection? Hmm. And everything in the text of Mark bears on the question of how do I move through times of tremendous suffering? And then hmm. comes the next piece of the journey, again, like in Back to the Passover Rhythm, coming into the Promised Land. And that text in us is the Gospel of John, which is at the end of the first century, the Christian community of Ephesus has lived into becoming a pan-tribal community, no longer primarily Jewish now, but uh, an experiment in a new face of the human family about how it no longer matters mm -hmm. what bloodline you come from because all bloodlines come from the same source. This is a huge, huge, huge mm -hmm. spiritual and psychological step forward for humanity. And it was a step forward that was discontinuous from the past. As, as every mm. third yeah. part of our journey must be discontinuous from our past. And this is always where tradition falters. Because tradition will always tie us to past and want us to sequentially fill in how you can go from there to here. But when it comes to the, to the new promise of God, that new promise is going to be discontinuous from what we've already known. Anyway, hmm. so the Gospel of John is this discontinuity in the face of wider revelation. Hmm. And then finally, and I, and I call the Gospel of John the question about how do we receive joy and, and know the obligations of joy. Hmm. Yeah. And then finally, go back to the, the last question of Passover uh, about service. And the last, the fourth chapter of the one gospel is Luke-Acts. And Luke-Acts comes late in the first century. It comes from the time where Judaism and Christianity have horribly broken apart from each other. And the Roman emperor now looks out and goes, oh, we've got this new religious tradition that is speaking about the equality of all people, is speaking about a raised status for women, is speaking about the fact that if you have wealth, you have an obligation to share that with people who do not, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the emperor wanted nothing to do with the value system of this new religion because it was such an anathema to his value system. And therefore, he decided mm. to make us illegals and then not when that didn't work stopping us, he decides to, to execute us. And the text of Luke-Acts is the, is the long text of service that says you must serve for the beauty and the power of serving. You must not look for applause. You must not look for appreciation. You must not look for esteem. And the text of Luke-Acts mm -hmm. really is one of the world's first great texts of nonviolent resistance. It says, 
they're going to kill us. Yeah. We're going to have to accept downward spiral. But we are going to live in the face of oppression. We're going to live and we're going to speak truth to power. That's the easy part. Speaking truth to power is the easy part. But Luke acts, adds the next line to it. We're going to speak truth to power in love. Which means we're mm. not going to demonize anyone. We are going to fight for justice. But we're not going to fight for justice by demonizing another person. We are going to be the love and the justice that we want to build. And we believe that if we do our small part, God will do the rest. This is like this is like mm. the fish in the loaves. It's like we think we've only got five fish here. And God takes that five, that that paltry five fish and feeds and feeds yeah. five thousand. So there's a there's a phenomenal work on wow. early Christianity, which which is called the the uh, the patient ferment, and it talks about how Christians engaged in small acts of love and justice in the face of execution, mm-hmm. in the face of execution, for almost 250 years, refusing to take up arms against the emperor while refusing to live by his values and know and knowing mm. that they could change the culture of the empire by the force of who they were as a follower as a follower mm. of Christ uh, anyway it, it's such a it, it's such a powerful um, um, in, to me, an, an, an inspiration to what we're going through today because we think we're up against it. We think we can't turn any of this around. And our God is saying, uh, I don't want you to go out and do heroics. I want you to do the small acts of love and justice today that you can do and leave the rest to me. Mm. Yeah. It, gosh, that's so much to, to kind of... a. a, a absorb and, and, and glean from. And it, it's amazing to me how succinctly those words describe those gospel accounts and those gospel testimonies um, and, and the themes behind them. It, it, it's, it, it's, it's so true. And it, and it honestly makes me want to go hang up this conversation and go back and reread all of them and, and just glean that one word from the entire narrative. Cause it, it really is true. Um, and that, that's one of the reasons why I was so excited to talk to you of, as someone who sees the, sees and has reflected on and meditated towards and, and contemplates this, um, as you put it so well, radical transformation, according to these four parts, I was super excited to get the chance to talk to you about, uh, how these four parts apply. I think in an age where all of us feel um, like we need to be important, like we need to be the next video to go viral, where we need to have millions of followers, where we need to have uh, a bullhorn at protests, or where we need to be um, front and center, or excuse me, front and center uh, at a at a protest or at a whatever venue or event. Um, the idea of these very simple principles uh, even me in myself like with my ego 
that irritates me of like are you telling me that this is all that it takes to transform this like no it takes it takes me being in the spotlight like why like why would it take anything else um other than a a video with a million views or a twitter with two million followers or whatever the 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 caption may be on that that moment but i i would love to just hear from you because a lot of the the premise of this show is application of uh changing perspectives or new new ways of thinking about things and so i'd i'd love to to talk to you a little bit about what so what is the application of of these um these ideas of, of this change that we see in matthew uh like this this new beginning this this suffering that we see in uh in mark this dis this discontinuity that we see in john and this uh this um shoot i'm sorry what was the word that you used for for luke service yes service what what can we learn how do we apply these these concepts because i think that there is so much to glean and, and understand from from the the testimony that these stories have for us today that in some ways we've we've embraced more wholeheartedly but in in the reality we've in some ways very much ignored well so the the, the first thing is i would want people to begin to re excuse me to recapture um the the, the map of the journey and i i realize mm. that each one of us has got to do our own walk and that each in our walk is going to be unique to our personality, to our history, to what's happened in our lives. But I really do mm-hmm. very much like Joseph Campbell and very much like our early ancestors believe that there is a, a rhythm and a, and a map. And, and it's, it's important for us to understand where the map starts. So one of the first things that our ancestors did, um, first 500 years of Christianity, was that they that they deified, they sanctified the 24 hours, and they understood, like our Jewish ancestors did, that when it comes to sunset and to nightfall, that's the beginning. And, and this was a daily practice of understanding that when the 24 hours comes to nightfall, that's the new day, because they wanted to teach us to begin to know that when our personal and our collective lives fall into nighttime, that's not the end. That's not the place where God isn't. That's the place where God is profoundly is. It's the beginning. That that and and you um i'm sort of passionate these days about pulling back from the incipient racism of our language because we we in christianity have demonized the dark and by doing that we have we have refused god's presence which is the night time is god's womb time and um that's mm. in nighttime and darkness is always the place where God begins new action in us. So when we reject darkness, when we think darkness is evil or sinful or all those horrible words that we put on darkness, we've separated ourselves from God, from where God wants us to begin in ourselves. 
So when when we have financial downturn, when we have COVID nineteen, when when we have ecological disaster, when uh, all the things that we're wrestling with today that tell us that perhaps we're in a nighttime experience. And I don't mean that God is creating these experiences. I'm saying that when we find ourselves in a time of great chaos, we can know that this is not how things end, that this is where things begin again. And so this is why early Christianity organized the 24 hours and organized the year, the, the Christian year. Uh, the sundown of the day, uh, the, the time that we go into the night was the beginning time of the day. And the sundown of the year, the time where the sun has gone down in the year, fall time, would be the beginning of the Christian year. So why does the Christian year start in late November? So everything about this was, was teaching us this ancient pattern about how to receive darkness, not fearfully, but with expectation. And that then mm. going through the dark, we come to dawn. And this was the ancient practice of Christians is that a couple of times every year, they would actually do what was called a vigil, which was stay up through the night to dawn because they wanted to practice and to teach themselves that at some point, every nighttime experience in us, if we are faithful, will end in a new dawn. And that that new dawn will move to great daylight. And in that great daylight, we may do the, the work that needs to be done. But remember that every great daylight is going to return again to a time when the sun goes down at a new nighttime. That this, that this cycle of sundown, night, deepest night, dawn, early light, full daylight, back to sundown, is teaching us about the journey that we make with God over and over and over and over. And that our life is not about moving from darkness to day and staying in day. This is the mm. this is the problem with our God with our calling God only light. Yes, God is light. God is also darkness. Try try to get try to get mm. that into yourself and into your languaging and into your understanding. That we are not a people that are that are that are called to move to be a people of light. We're called to be a people who understand that light and dark are part of God in a rhythm. So that, mm. that's the first practice is to begin to live this rhythm of darkness to light, back to darkness to light, back to darkness, back to light. And secondly, it would be to find the scripture that helps us live this rhythm. And I will tell you for myself, I started almost 40 years ago now, uh, taking the Sunday gospel passage, not to read just on Sunday, but I don't read scripture just throughout the week and uh, mixing and mass, mixing and mass, max, mixing and matching passages. Um, I take 
the Sunday gospel text and pray it all week long so that when that text mm. comes on Sunday, I've prayed that text for five or six days before Sunday. And then on Monday, I start with the text for the next week. All the great, mm. um, not great, but all the, uh, the mainline Christian traditions began something uh, 25 to 50 years ago, which is they restored the ancient reading cycle uh, of, Christ of Christianity so that if you're Roman Catholic, Lutheran, Episcopal, Anglican, uh, Presbyterian, Methodist, um, and I think some of the other of our brothers and sister traditions can choose the, the universal cycle or not, but we all are reading the same passage on the same Sunday in a three-year cycle. And that three-year cycle is this ancient cycle of reading the scriptures from our ancestors. And it has uh, the grace of the journey underneath it. So again, very much like my, my Arabic grandmother, um, I let the grace of the scripture drip on me all week long, not because I'm trying to reach it only with an intellectual understanding, but I understand that that scripture has a presence that will enliven my life and my heart. And so I, I'm trying, I'm trying mm. to let the scripture work on me underneath or in a greater way than my intellect. Because mm. it, it, that, that presence can hold my heart. Hmm. And that's something that seems so so difficult for for so many of us that were raised in in kind of American evangelicalism is to differentiate um, the text from my my logic or my opinions of right. the text or my uh, studies of the text. And so, I mean, even in myself, it, it's I see that as like that's the place I need to start the to be able to distinguish the two from one another and and it unfortunately it seems like even going towards a bible education it seems like in some ways it's pushed me closer to being able to differentiate the two but in those same ways of being able to differentiate the two it's also made it so much easier for me to blur um, my opinions of the text with the text actually leading me into something more beautiful the reason that I wrote this book, and it has got various titles, the paperback and the Kindle is Heart and Mind, The Core Gospel Journey for Radical Transformation, and the hardback edition is Radical Transformation, The Core Gospel Journey of Heart and Mind. But what I wanted mm -hmm. to do with this book is to give people the good critical thinking that would bring you back to hopefully knowing that early Christians gave us the right, complete text. Of course, there are mm. other stories of Jesus. Of course, there are wisdom stories of Jesus that could have been included in the canon. But I think, I believe, and I rest quite secure knowing that these four texts are the only ones that have the fullness of the journey. So I can mm. move away from 
all the yada, yada, yada about the committee and the arguments and the, are there better texts out there or should I be reading Gnostic texts? And uh, there is a profound holiness that is only in these four texts without saying that there aren't other texts that also have wisdom in them. Uh, secondly, uh, perhaps to become uh, convinced by the experience that these texts will lead us on the journey as we trust them more and more to do that. And to know that the early Christians so trusted these four texts that they used them as the primary preparation for baptism by having people over three years of Sundays slowly pray and study and reflect on them. So that that what I would like mm. people to do is without leaving aside your critical mind at all, to, to come back to understand there is a presence underneath the particularity of the words. And um, mm. there and that we can trust that presence and that that presence will hold us and lead us to where we need to go. Hmm. Dang. So I, I, you know, I, I am very comfortable changing words in the text. I oftentimes will, there's no reason that we have to have all the he's in the text. The he's can be she's. Um, the disciples can be men or women. Uh, one of the most radical changes mm. that I do when I go to the Gospels is I change all the past tense words to present tense. It's never Jesus said. You know, mm. Every time we say Jesus said, we make Jesus dead. Um, the text, the text mm. is not about Jesus Dang. said. The text is about Jesus says. And everything mm. in the text may have happened in one moment to tell us about how it happens in every moment, that these, that this is the text of today, not the text of 2000 years ago. Mm. Yeah. It's relevant and it's, it's speaking and it's, and it, it's still, it, it's interesting for a people that, that like to fight over the fact that the Bible is um, authoritative today. It, 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 it's, it sure seems like we don't, really comprehend and i me too i'm yeah. I'm not saying that as uh as a, a other statement i'm saying that in myself too of like jesus is still speaking absolutely. like the things that jesus said are still relevant absolutely and, and um i mean as as i will say uh, these gospels are not about a story of death and resurrection at the end the whole of each gospel is about the life of resurrection Every word of the text of Matthew is about the resurrection that we will experience as we move with the Christ into a time of change. It just it is very much changing the gospel from about then to a text of here and now. Yeah, no, I I agree. Well, I I want to be sensitive of, of your time and and whatnot, but I would I I, I kind of have one more question for you. Uh, one one more kind of conversational question. Hey, I'm I'm starting my day. Oh yeah, um, I I was just wondering, with all of this in mind, I mean we've covered a lot of ground, and and I'd I'd love to have you back on to talk more about more in depth about some of these ideas. Um, 
and and more about your work but for people who are thinking through this current moment with coronavirus and with with protests and and whatnot where what do we do what where do we start what uh, I, I get asked this question a fair amount these days hmm. in in terms of the of the one great story uh, clearly, we are in a collective moment, which is a nighttime moment, mm. which means that we are back into a moment of beginning. And one of the things that I know is, is that as we move through this moment, the life that I knew up until March the 14th is gone. Mm. And I don't know what the new normal is going to be. I don't know what the new life is going to be. But I have to accept that we are in a profound change moment. Mm-hmm. And I have to accept, and I and I and I it's not I have to accept. I know that God's presence is with us mm-hmm. and is going to work with this moment to lead us into some phenomenal new places as Christians, as people of the planet. Um so that I, I, the, the gospel and especially the gospel of Matthew teaches me that God's presence is here. You know, the gospel of Matthew is the only text that at the beginning and the end gives us that beautiful line about Emmanuel, God is with us. Because this Matthew is the text about our going into a new nighttime and the thing that we need to know about being in this nighttime, God is with us. And just like at the end of Matthew, on the unknown mount of resurrection, Jesus says to the disciples, I send you out. The thing is, the disciples want to know where they want to go. They want to know how to get there. They want to know what resources they have. And Jesus says, I'm not giving you any of that outer stuff. I'm giving you the only thing that you need. Mm. I'm with you. I'm with you. Now let's go figure this out together. Mm. And that's what we all have got to reach for right now is to know that in this moment, our old life is gone. The new life stretches ahead with great uncertainty. Mm. But God is with us. And together, we'll figure this out. Mm. That's powerful. Um, I, I'd love to just close out with, with two more questions. of, of So... <laughs> So where can people find you and, uh, and how, and, uh, what are you working on now? Well, so, um, please invite people to go to my website, which is quadratus.com. And this is the name that, that came to me to, about the work of four Mm. quad Q U A D R A. T-O-S, Q-U-A-D-R-A-T-O-S dot com. And on that website is all manner of resources and also how to find my books and how to find articles and how to listen to podcasts. And it's all there free for the clicking. Uh, secondly, I, I'm, I, I came to Spain to finish a book on Christmas that I started a couple of years ago. It's going to be called The 13 Days of Christmas. I think that's going to be the title is The 13 Days of Christmas. And in, it anchors where the great celebration of Christmas comes from in the Celtic world. 
and why it's a 13-day celebration. And uh, that's a little bit of a tease because we all, we've all sung the song, The 12 Days of Christmas, so much. Mm. But, if you, but Christmas Day is the first day of Christmas followed by the 12 days of Christmas. Mm. And there's a whole story about from Christmas Day to the 6th of January, the Epiphany, which is the journey of transformation. And it's why we have this 13-day festival to celebrate the birth of Christ in us. So um, that's the book that's coming. Heck yeah. Well, I've personally, I've been excited to read that book since you first started talking about it. Um, so I, I'm very excited to, to get my hands on that as soon as that's out. Um, Alexander, I, I usually try to an- end my shows because the shows are about spiritual practice and and how we kind of act and and how we uh how we live and and what we do and i think one of the things that's really lacking in just christendom in general these days um is the practice of encouraging one another and so i just want to take Mm -hmm. a moment to encourage you um and just say i'm very thankful for for the work that you do I'm very thankful for the way that you uh, engage the mind from a scholastic and uh, logical point of view, but also you push people to be comfortable and accept mystery. And I was first introduced to you at a time um, very early on in in kind of my deconstruction out of a more, uh, I don't want to say fundamentalist, but a more reformed uh, worldview. And so for me, I found a lot of healing in your words and a lot of healing in the things that you said, um, both in your books and and through podcasts. And so I just wanted to say thank you to you personally, and also just wanted to encourage you and say that I know from, from firsthand accounts and, and from people that we both know just how important your work has been in the faith journeys of, of so many people. And I'm so excited to, to see what comes next with this book. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to say thank you. Chris, thank you. Absolutely. It's been a long, it's been a long journey and, and your gratitude means a great deal to me. Thank you, brother. Absolutely. We'll have to, I'll have to have you back on soon. And we, we covered so much ground and I'd, I'd love to talk <laughs> a little more in depth about some of these key ideas. Uh, I'm here for the invitation. Sounds good. Well, have a great day, Alexander. Uh, Will do, and uh, sleep well. (laughs) Thank you.